0: the sports lawyers association podcast whether you work for a team on the field the ice a court track or a diamond our association gives you an opportunity to grow you're listening to episode number two athletes and activism with host and sla president bobby hacker sit back and enjoy well beyond the final buzzer So for today's SLA podcast, I'd like to introduce my guest, Ken Shropshire, the CEO of the Global Sports Institute and the Adidas, Adidas or do I say Adidas, Distinguished Professor of, <laughs> Distinguished Professor of Global Sports at Arizona State University. So welcome, Ken. Um, you know, you've had... Uh, a varied career that has led you to your current role at ASU. And for our audience, could you give us a quick rundown of the path that got you to this position at, at ASU and a little bit about the Global Sports Institute?
1: Yeah, Bobby. I mean, the short, the short version is it, it wasn't a plan. I mean, the you know, it starts off with, with uh, I guess, like so many of us, my plan was to play in the NFL and, um, I, you know, the road started off OK, uh, ended up uh, kind of this all city, all state player out of out of L.A. And went to Stanford on a football scholarship. And about sophomore year, reality set in that <laughs> that, that uh, NFL dream was not happening. So, uh, as you know, we we're kind of kind of the same era. It was about that time that uh, lawyers started representing athletes as agents. So I said, ah, that might be some way to stay involved in sport. So I headed down that road initially uh, was initially at a law firm back then. It was Manat Phelps, Rothenberg and Tony that did a lot of sports related work, um, both representing about 50 baseball players and doing a lot of work for the NBA. So got a feel for it there. And um, the Olympics were coming to Los Angeles. And after about a uh, one year interview process, I got a a job there initially negotiating uh, sponsored licensing deals for the 84 games, the most financially successful games of all time, (laughs) the comeback games, and then uh, was in charge of the sport of boxing for the last part of the games. So, you know, shifted kind of from the just pure legal stuff into this more management side. The, um, you know, what kind of got me closer to where I am today I had been teaching part-time just for fun at Southwestern Law School in L.A., started teaching a sports law course back before there was even a textbook with kind of mimeographed materials. Um, And
0: and you might have to back up and explain what mimeograph is because, you know, you're talking about the whole technology there.
1: Those of us that did not go to school in the L.A. Unified School District in the 60s, uh-huh. But f- photocopied material. Let's just say that this is the precursor to uh, uh, to the photocopy machine. It's kind of this blue ink that Bobby probably uh, uh, I did uh, not inhale. No. <laughs> so uh, it was doing that, and when the Olympics ended, uh, had to figure out what was next. And the two things that I had done consistently since I've been in Alaska, this is you know s- four or five years out was to teach and to be involved in sports. So I started looking for a full-time teaching gig and continued to practice law. I represented some boxers, some Olympic athletes, did a lot of other stuff, and then got the job uh, at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where I actually uh, was for 32 years kind of of a journey before uh, coming to the Global Sport Institute. And, and Bobby, I, I'll tell you, over, that, over those years, this is when you and I met, uh, did a lot of different stuff besides teach, was fortunate enough to uh, represent a number of people and negotiations to be things like athletic directors, to be uh, professional team executives, uh, did some sponsorship work and just consulting on the business side uh, with leagues, teams and others related to diversity and then educational issues. We founded at Wharton a program called the Business Management and Entrepreneurship Program, which helped NFL players transition from playing uh, into the into the real world. Um, and, and, and kind of the, you know, one, one yeah, great consulting opportunity was with uh, an enterprise. It's kind of in the news right now called RISE, the Ross Initiative of in Support for Equality. Um, Stephen Ross's initiative to focus on using sport to impact uh, the race issue in America positively. The, um, so today, this Global Sport Institute um, was approached by Arizona State University about building an institute that does research in sport, focused on impactful issues, utilizing the power of a whole university, uh, so funded by ASU and Adidas. Uh, and we've done uh, been underway about a year and a half we've done a lot of podcasts we are uh, working on documentaries that's many documentaries that are up already Uh, some educational programs we're doing a a finance boot camp for example for the NFL we're looking deeply at this athlete transition issue but a wide range of issues beyond the things that I do Uh, things like uh, issues related to wearables Uh, we're, we're following a, a transgender athlete who's transitioning from male to female, and what impact that will have on this world class athlete's athletic performance. Uh, she actually uh, ran the Boston Marathon as a male and will, will be running as a female uh, in the coming year. So, a wide variety of stuff, Bobby. Just, uh, uh, you know, as I say, start off on a journey where you're, you're trying to uh, uh, be a center in the National Football League and you, you end up. Uh, running a sports research institute in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona.
0: You know, it's interesting, Ken, um, and I'm doing this because I really enjoyed reading it, but in your book, The Miseducation of the Student-Athlete, you bring up a, an, an interesting point, a sort of a, a starting point. You note that as far back as 1929, there was a debate going on about paying college athletes. And so here we are in 2019, uh, 90 years later, and there is movement afoot, particularly here in California, to suggest that name and likeness rights ought to be owned by the student athlete. It seems to me this opens up a world of issues related to dealing with college athletes on You know what they are and I think you raise some really interesting points in your book about particularly power five athletes in you know the major sports no offense to other sports but football and basketball and you look at the time involved their status and it raises a lot of questions about are these really students anymore and how does the and the shift of being a student and the whole concept of the student athlete story that you lay out so well in the, in the book, I'm just curious, do you think that we're actually going to get to a point where there are more employees than students?
1: Yeah, that, my my first response is I hope not. (laughs) And uh, I think this is where uh, I am guilty of longing for the past and, and longing for what, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s and maybe into the 80s, you were able to do. And that is to, to really do both and to excel at both. And to be kind of a, <laughs> a pedestrian guy like myself and still be able to do both, You're gonna kind of play at the highest level you can play, but also uh, get a meaningful degree on your way out. And, and what I found in the book, and, and a lot of it was related to um, my son, who was a uh, was a tennis player at Northwestern. So you know, quality university with a a high level athletic program, and it was really with him. I think that's for me it six years ago, where I saw you know it really is much more difficult to do both than I thought. The obligations to practice, uh, whether mandatory or not. You know, the 20 hour a week uh, uh, myth that we hear about is is really a fallacy, because even if a coach adheres to that, uh, these young men and young women do so much more because they want to be successful at the highest level. So the pressure for success doesn't allow you to step back and allows you to uh, mandate you kind of walk around that philosophy of any time I'm not spending getting ready for the next competition, that's time I'm uh, devoting to losing. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's pushing me back further while somebody else is getting ahead. So, you know, when you ask the question, are we headed that way? I, I say, I hope not. Uh, and the book trying to strives to, to find ways to, to deal with that, to think about extending um, the, the calendar for these, um, and we'll, we'll still call them student-athletes. And when I say extend the calendar, it is to have some sort of academic boot camp before they arrive to map out a way for a kid who wants to be a physician to have a pre-med major that may take six years to complete, that that really is the plan going in and that it's paid for in that kind of way. Um, to me, I, I have no problem. I think it's you know, a great thing if you can pay everybody, pay everybody, but the the primary obligation and uh, for better better people uh, in in the future for these young men and what young women to be more successful in the future the idea of, of leaving with a meaningful degree uh, to me is much more beneficial than leaving with uh, which which would never be what we, there's not a there's not a path to paying anybody a lot of money um, and not to say that you know a little bit of money doesn't mean something to to, to a lot of people but but that's not going to be a great economic uh, uh windfall um, the, the the real plus would come with uh, a, a transition into real life after participating in this, this student athlete kind of world. So, so it's you know so it's it's complex, but um, but I think we we need to step back and and not just have the binary. Do we do we pay them or not? There's a lot more to it.
0: Yeah, I think there there are sort of two issues that I'd like to dig in a little bit on, which is you spoke about uh, an academic boot camp of sorts for incoming student athletes when they enter the university but i'm also curious to know about the end of that period when an athlete's eligibility is up and at the point that your eligibility is up as an athlete there are sort of two questions that come to mind which is number one am i as a student athlete on pace to get a degree Uh, especially given that you know the percentage is in the low single digits of those thousands and thousands of just looking at D1 athletes who are never going to play professional sports. And I know there's a great sort of PSA that the NCAA has about, you know, we're doing other things professionally that isn't in sports. That sounds all well and good, but are there really programs being developed for these student athletes at the end of their career to transition into a life without sport?
1: Now, that that's a great question, Bobby. It, it, the answer is uh, people are trying and um what what we're doing, you know, commercial for the Global Sport Institute, I mean we really have if 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 people visit our, our website, we really have begun to try to do the real research to see what's working and how can it be done better. You know, what what I found and even you know, even with what what in what, what we do. So at, at Wharton when we had the Business management and entrepreneurship program for the NFL players. Um, when we do the, the finance boot camp at, at, uh, from ASU for, for those players, you know, what I, I, you know, and I face the reality of we, we're just, we're delivering a program. We kind of do an evaluation at the end and, and then keep on moving. But we are not uh, holistically involved in how do we help somebody really transition and what else should be done in the broadest way. I mean, how would we change uh, the whole process? How would somebody get in, uh, you know, your or my head as as we're growing up in LA as, as kids in you know, elementary and middle school? Uh, how do we get told, look, whatever you think, however successful you are, the sports thing is not going to last forever. So it's okay to begin to think about what it is you might want to do, and and that that's not what happens. I mean, really, the mentality is for success you've got to be single-focused and don't think about anything else. We even see that at the, the highest levels when, when people come to these programs we, we do uh, from the various colleges. So what we have found is there needs to be uh, an enterprise that steps back and says, how could we really revise this whole system? So in some ways, it's an extension of the uh, the the uh, et- Miseducation of Student Athlete book to think about how how do we change the whole ecosystem? And nobody else has really done it, frankly, because uh, you're not going to get paid for doing this. It really is a research institute kind of a task. You know, what should we do? How can we be more successful with this? I mean, just, just a, l- a little detour. I, I did some work uh, in my journey in South Africa with, uh, I'll, I'll shortcut the story, but there's a, a a tribe in South Africa, and think tribe like uh, a Native American community, that um, upon the ending of apartheid, uh, they found themselves with this, it's a 300,000 person tribe. They found themselves with uh, sitting on the world's largest deposit of platinum. So this tribe of 300,000 people literally had billions. And the the connection to, to what we're thinking about in the States is, There had not been sports in the schools in this tribe because the apartheid regime didn't want blacks to organize via sport and to have that that level of success. So um, I did a a consulting project with this tribe. And the question they asked was, uh, if you could introduce sport into a community uh, for the first time um, from the, the youngest age on up, how would it be structured? And part of the question was, would you do what you did in the United States? I think the answer is no. So it, so it allowed me to kind of step back and think about you know, what is it we should do and how can we do it the right way? But how can we also include the opportunity to perform at the highest level if somebody has that talent? So, so that's what I think we need to do here. Is there a way to reform things realistically um, and actually help these men and women to be ready to naturally transition out whenever they transition out, whenever they're pushed out of the kind of the tip of the, the pyramid, when they're no longer in there uh, with a chance of success. So, so again, another, another complicated issue, but one one we're looking at in depth and I don't know what the answers are right now.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm I was surprised a couple of years ago when I learned that I think it's in the majority of cases that college athletes don't arrive with a four year scholarship. And that seemed kind of concerning to me because you go as a scholarship athlete, you, you play a year, maybe you get injured, you can't play anymore. The school isn't obliged to keep you on scholarship. And for some of these kids, it's impossible to get an education without that scholarship. Is there any movement in that regard about, you know, obligations of the universities to take care of these kids when they can't play because of injury or it's just, they're not up to the task of playing at that level.
1: Yeah, that, that's gotten better. I mean, it, you know, it, um, I want to say it was about six or seven years ago that the NCAA regulations allowed conference by conference for the conference to decide uh, to give four year scholarships as opposed to one year renewable sc- scholarships. And so you know, it's still not universal. I mean, there's still places that, that don't do it. Um, the Big Ten, for example, is 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 pretty good. Probably uh, leads the way in it. And and the idea that you, when you sign that letter of intent, it's a four-year letter of intent, uh, and that the obligation to provide you with the education, provided you, you know, sort of present yourself and make yourself ready, and uh, if the injury occurs. Uh, within the sport, then you're still covered. It's just you know if you get on the motorcycle accident or the you know the uh, the glider accident or something that has nothing to do with the sport, where it can be problematic. I mean that's where we really need to move to. I, I think the the idea that you know I'm fully committed to this, and your your um, return to me, your your payment to me, your compensation to me um, is at a minimum that I will give you. And, and mostly those are, are five years. I'll give you give you five years of education.
0: Right, and in your book, you sort of propose that I forget the exact phrase you use, but you talk about basically extending the window for some period of time up to however long it takes you to complete your degree, which I think is an interesting idea because digging into the weeds of the business part of this, if and. I'm speaking particularly about the, the money-making sports in, in, in the college space. But if I've made you, you know, I've played, had four eligible years, which may have been over five seasons, and I've helped generate the kind of money that these sports generate, it would seem to me that the university should say thank you, and we're here for you however long it takes you to finish your degree. And I... Do you have a sense that that's gaining favor as opposed to, well, you're a professional athlete so you can just pay your own way now?
1: Yeah, man, it's interesting. It, it, I think it's, it's gaining favor, but that's sort of, you know, it's kind of kind of funny. You know, somebody who has a uh, you know 10-year NFL career and or NBA career, whatever it might be, and, and they have, you know, in the rare cases, they have $10, $15 million in the bank. Uh, the idea that uh, I want not just tuition, but I want housing, I want everything else paid for. I think it's still right, but it, but, but it is kind of, I have encountered a number of guys that have uh, not wanted to go back because they weren't getting everything from the school. So it's kind of, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's, you know, maybe a little skin in the game at some point makes sense, but I do think, you know, the, the, the fair, I think it's designed, and what I think about is it, it's really designed for those, um, those men and women who don't have the great financial success and it is another option for them to uh, to go back to school, get a degree and find find where they're supposed to be in life. But for many, it may be another path. It may be go back uh, to dad's plumbing business and uh, do an apprenticeship there. It, it, it may be uh, to get a certificate to, to coach um, in parks and record or something like that. But, but I do think having it available at any point in life and providing the financial support that anybody needs that's, that's committed themselves as an 18-year-old to your institution is something that's very viable uh, with the, the revenues that are available at, at these institutions. And it is, you know, and we haven't gotten to this yet, but it, 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 it may be a shifting of priorities. Maybe you can't pay your head coach $10 million anymore. Maybe there's got to be uh, a, a change on where the dollars flow. And that and that's all about, all about priorities. And, you know, for all the uh, economics people out there, I mean, the markets would just shift, and it, and it was just a readjustment of the markets. And you know, maybe if somebody wants to make that you know ten million dollar number, they have to go to the NFL. In college is not the place where you're going to get paid at the, at the level because those dollars are being uh, better utilized to uh, ensure the future of these young men and women.
0: Yeah, guys like you and I who are reasonably educated men who went to. University or undergraduate years in a world where, by and large, the football, basketball, baseball players, track athletes, etc., they went to the university to spend four years there before moving on or before entering into, uh, you know, the professional sports world. That has changed a lot in the college space, particularly with. What I find to be the most ridiculous of all the college basketball one and done, um, and even you know the football players that, after that junior year of eligibility, or the three years after high school class, however it's defined, can then turn to professional sports, and they're walking away from education. I guess it's a choice of preference among the athletes, but. It seems the system may be failing some of these kids on the educational front.
1: Oh yeah, for sure, for for sure, and you know, it's yeah. Again, I, I you know, I, I think so many of us are uh, stuck in a time warp, or or uh, or have some experience in life where the educational system was not uh, necessarily embracing, but. We found or we know somebody else who found a way to get through that system and be successful and i I think many of us put too much of a burden on these um, young men and young women to find that path where again, there is so much revenue available that no, there should be greater assistance in making the path uh, one that's easy to to grab onto that that it doesn't you know you, 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 we we shouldn't think of these. Um, these athletes, like uh, the kid who's in a you know, rundown inner-city school, and they find a way to, to find the math book. They find a way to find all the stuff they need to be successful. In the in the NCAA world, what we're asking these these student athletes to do is find a way to find the time to get a meaningful degree, um, and, which is very difficult. As opposed to, no, we're going to show you the path to do what you want to do. We're going to start off. Uh, with counseling on day one that will better understand what you want to do and help you figure out the path uh, that allows you to get there. You know, for somebody who wants to be, for example, the physical education major, that 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 may be something that can readily be done because it really intertwines with what you're doing uh, as an athlete. But somebody that wants to be the nuclear physicist, um, well, those classes – uh, will be all outside of, of this other task you're performing, the sports task. So you really need to roadmap something out to to get you there to be successful with summer school, with a couple years after school, uh, and, and all those sorts of things, which uh, it can be figured out, but it'd be even better if there were counselors in place and said, "This is this is how we can do what you want to do in
0: life. Yes. Do you think there's a growing... Focus and support in the universities for, I guess, what you would call study hall programs, providing those resources to the student athletes so that, you know, if you're playing a sport, which even, you know, you're playing intercollegiate sports, there's a lot of time spent and you may have that 20 hour rule, but, you know, these are elite athletes who realize that 20 hours a week isn't going to get me to the top of the game and I got to do stuff on my own but that balance you know how much i mean is is there a move within the NCA 2A to really support the um support you know steady halls or other kind of academic support these days
1: yeah it, you know when i when i started writing the um uh, the miseducation book. I, I talked to somebody you know, off the record in the NCAA about that. I was trying to zero in on that—the the whole hours and rules and that sort of stuff—and <laughs> and they said to me, and I, you know, and thought about it in this way. I was trying to think: How do we change this? How do we reform this? They said, "Hey, man, you know, the, the horse—that horse is out the barn. We cannot reel that back in. There, there's, you know, could you really get a generation to all of a sudden say?" I'm not going to put it in, in as much time as those guys that were successful before me. So, so that to me was a, yeah, a, a, kind of a simple stunning moment where I said, you know, they're right. How, how do you, how do you change that? Um, you know, how do you enforce, if you enforce the rule more vigorously, <laughs> then you have student, student athletes going out in the middle of the night or working out in their dorm rooms or whatever it might be. Um, so, so it's really something hard to, to pull back in. So, so it is, uh, you know, I think you continue to enforce and continue to, um, state and have regulations that, that limit the time, but I think you're more, the reality is you figure out ways to add, as, as we've talked about time on both ends, uh, of the, of the four or five year eligibility period.
0: Yeah, there are a million things around. Collegiate sports, which we've been focusing on in our in our little discussion today, but as a <laughs> as a student of Professor Harry Edwards in my undergraduate days, um, I've always been particularly interested in the athlete's voice. I would say, in a certain respect, independent of sports, but using sports as their platform, college and pro sports and the athletes that are governed only by, you know, national governing bodies, there are are clearly differences because the organizations to which they owe a sort of allegiance. But we're in a situation in our country, I think, where athletes are more inclined than ever to start speaking up. But in the college space, I really wonder how much of those First Amendment rights and the ability to openly protest or even available to
1: them. Yeah, and it's, it's um, you know, that, that's a great question. Somebody asked me, you know, is there, does a which head coach has more control, the the college head coach or the pro head coach? And in some ways, you know, although you can be run off in college, once they got you, if you're out there, it's, it's very hard to get you off the, off the field. I mean, if coaches can find a way, but the pros, you know, it's just economics. You, you may have to, you may lose somebody if you cut somebody, but you can can get rid of them. So, so if that's the uh, determinant of who we would expect uh, was protesting more, it would seem like the college players were, and historically that's what it was. So if you think about the, you're talking about the Harry Edwards uh, prime time era, you know, the, the late '60s, early '70s. You think about the great protests that were taking place. They were at San Jose State. They were in the uh, what was that the old WAC conference um, uh, schools there. There were great protests at Syracuse, and so all these things were happening, and very little in the pros. I mean, there's the in the pros you have individual actions. You have you know Kurt Flood. uh, You have the Ali Summit and kind of athletes supporting Ali around Jim Brown that sort of thing. But on mass, it was at the college level. So so really, it's a flip today to see, you know, led by Kaepernick and, and Kenny Stills and, and all these people participating today, it's really a, a flip to see much less in college. Um, but I think, you know, maybe it is. I think the reality in college is you can be frozen out uh, pretty quickly. Even if you can't be thrown off the team, you can be frozen out. And, and I think the uh, the aspiration, uh, aspiration impact of, you know, I I don't want to rock the boat because I want to make it to that next level and get get that payday it may have an influence as
0: well. Yeah, I, you know, I I talk to uh, law students a lot, lecturing at at uh, law schools or it's entertainment and sports law societies at law schools. And over the time, I've come on, I've come up with sort of three tent poles to give advice to these kids, and one my second point is when i look at them and i say there are no participation trophies which is to say that success in life in athletics and whatever requires really hard work and i see you know a lot of people coming into my concern really is i see these kids coming into sports and in the collegiate level where most collegiate scholarship athletes were the best athlete in elementary school and the best athlete in junior high school and the best athlete in high school. And they'd come to the college and all of a sudden, maybe they're not the best. They're still really good. And then they get—they think that you know they've been given a lot of stuff. The system is, I think, somewhat corrupted the reality of what you get for what you do. And now we have a situation where somebody's had this experience, they go to college, maybe they play, maybe they're involved, they get out. Are they prepared for the real world? Or do they think life is about participation trophies and not learn work?
1: Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it is, you know, it is, it is, again, two old guys sitting here at the barbershop, basically. It, it is, you know, we, we learn a lot of lessons by losing and not getting anything. Right? We learn you learn you learn a lot by uh, no, you are the loser. And, and yes, you see those guys, those shiny trophies or or you see somebody else getting uh, this, this special trip or you all, you know, it's, it's just it's a it's a reality. And I think, uh, you know, it's not universal. I mean, it's, there certainly are uh, many places where the same rules adhere as they did uh, kind of in, in our day. But it is uh, sad to publicly see someone's first exposure to that moment and that they, they weren't treated in the way they thought they could be. They weren't treated uh, gingerly as they were dismissed from uh, some sporting event or, or opportunity uh, to perform. Um, it, it, it's a it's a reality and, it, and it, you know, it, it could flow and in, flow into and we see it in the workplace as well, which is a whole different podcast of people of responding to to leadership and success and failure and those sorts of things.
0: Well, Ken, I I can't thank you enough for taking part to chat for a while. Obviously, uh, I'd be happy to sit in a barbershop with you for the whole day, (laughs) talking about the world and solving all the world's price problems in the sports world and in, in our society because they do reflect upon each other, I think, more and more. But before we uh, conclude our podcast, since this is a Sports Lawyers Association podcast, and since you've been a longtime member, a longtime board member, past president, even a past treasurer, much to your chagrin, um, can you just speak for a moment about what you've learned or your experiences and why I would hope that you still remain a strong advocate of the organization?
1: Well, the, the, the biggest plus, and, and, and you know, Bobby, you know, think about it, we, we would not, it's not likely that we would know each other, certainly not at the level we do now after all these years, I don't know how many it's been, decades, literally, um, had it not been for their organization. And not so much the, the formality of it, but the opportunity to, to casually interact. Um, but also, I mean, people should know if there's been some you know, real legal issue to know we can call each other, and we have called each other for stuff, um, to get the insight and direction that and nobody knows at all, no matter how long you've been especially in the sports area. Um, and, and to have relationships with, with people that that do know it all in their uh, narrow spaces is invaluable. And the Sports Lawyer Association, I, I, I wasn't at the first meetings, but, but, but certainly have been attending for, for decades, and near, near the very beginning, has grown. And I always tell young people, just keep coming <laughs> and, and don't worry about the board. Don't worry about being an officer. If that's going to happen, that, that, that will come. But what you want to do is, is get to know the people get to know, as we say in another organization, the best of one another uh, and enjoy it. And don't, don't come there uh, targeting this job or that job or this relationship or, or that one. Um, just uh, I almost say just just let it flow. And there's great value that will come from it.
0: Yeah, I think, I think you've, you've said it perfectly, which is, I think part of the charge that we have, not in just a, this organization, but across the nature of our practices, our jobs, whatever, is the concept of relationships, which I think is sometimes lost um, in the world of texts and emails. Sometimes you just have to meet with people and talk to them because we as lawyers are trained to find the answer we can go to i used to say books but people look at me like what are books you know you can go to online resources and you can find out anything you need to solve the problem but at the end of the day an organization like ours where you meet somebody you can pick up the phone and call someone and work through the problem and get just as valid a result or get a head start on the research you have to do. So I think part of what I have, I am so fond about with respect to the organization is the fact that the relationships allow you to make you better at your practice because you have the most important resources in the world, which are people.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. The, the, uh, a, a quote that I overuse and, and not necessarily someone that I, I'm aligned with, but it's a great quote. Malcolm Forbes said, uh, the worst time to develop a relationship is when you need it, that that, that these relationships should all be be fluid and, and not something you're striving to do, but something uh, for a purpose, but something that you're striving to do because it's what you're supposed to do.
0: Well, that's the perfect way to end this podcast. Thank you. Ken Shropshire for being our guest here on the SLA podcast. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. Now that the final buzzer has sounded, don't let this be the end of our conversation. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Sports Lawyers or find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and be sure to be on the lookout for more podcasts in the future.